I have an important sermon this morning. We're going to be continuing in 2 Chronicles, so if you'll turn there, I would appreciate it. We're in 2 Chronicles, and we're in chapter 11. This is a follow-up to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and 11 kind of go together. I preached on chapter 10 two weeks ago, and now I'm going to preach on chapter 11 today. If you didn't hear the sermon from two weeks ago, you really need to listen to it. And um, it's on our YouTube channel, and you can listen to it there. And um, today we're going to cover chapter 11. We're going to cover the whole chapter. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? I'm only going to read the first verse. The scripture reads, Now when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is Secession and Faithfulness. Our heads and Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you this morning that you have preserved your scriptures so we can know your ways and your thoughts. We live in the midst of a culture and age, both within the church and without the church, O oh God, where we have seen how man in his machinations can create things so amazingly contrary to you and pillar belief systems so amazingly contrary to you. We thank you that you have preserved your word. We thank you for those brothers and sisters who hazarded their lives before us to preserve that word. We thank you that you have preserved your word, O God, in the earth. And we just ask, O Lord, that you be glorified in the preaching of your word here today. Help me to set forth that which you give me to declare. May you use it for good in our lives. May we all be forever different. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. You be seated. So here in chapter 11, verse 1, we see Rehoboam, who, of course, was Solomon's son, heir to the throne, preparing for war because the ten northern tribes had just seceded, had seceded actually from Israel. Remember in our last sermon, we saw that the Lord was judging Solomon for his rebellion against the Lord and for his abuse of authority. So you need to listen to chapter 10. We saw in our last sermon that the Lord was judging Solomon for his rebellion against the Lord and for his abuse of authority, and he was using secession, the Lord was using secession to judge Solomon, to bring judgment upon his heirs. The ten northern tribes would be torn away. Remember the prophecy of Ahijah that we looked at two weeks ago? He literally had a new garment, and he tore it in 12 pieces, right there in front of Jeroboam, letting him know you're going to get ten of these pieces. Ahijah literally had a new garment, tore it in twelve pieces, and ten pieces were taken from Solomon, representing the ten tribes that were now seceding. The Lord was using secession to judge Solomon's rebellion against him and Solomon's abuse of authority. Secession has a place in the affairs of nations. The rebellion of Solomon entailed his tolerance 
and his promotion and worship of false gods. The false gods of his 700 wives, he had been corrupted by their influence. Remember, we showed from Scripture that they were not mere political marriages. He liked all the sex, and he had intermarried. He had joined himself to pagan women, political or not. That was the rebellion. And remember, the abuse of authority came first most in the form of taxation. Solomon had brought a heavy tax burden upon the people, and the people didn't like it. And as often in the case, the people will accommodate to the rebellion and evil, like Solomon putting up these high places of false gods and his immorality, but they will not tolerate their precious money being taken from them when it reaches a certain point. Man is pathetic that way, and history shows he has always been pathetic that way. They will check the abuse of a tyrant over money, but not morals. Let me tell you what I have seen just in my lifetime of 62 years. I was four years old when President Lyndon B. Johnson launched his Great Society in 1964. For those of you too young to know, the Great Society was nothing more than a statist hell unleashed upon America, looking to the state to cure every evil and meet every need. President Franklin D. Roosevelt had already broken up the fallow ground for the acceptance of statism in the previous generation when he unleashed his New Deal in 1933. So there were already plenty of statist Americans around when the Great Society was promulgated. But there were also plenty of Americans who saw it for the evil it was and is. I saw most Americans at that time, when I was just a boy, unhappy to see the American government lavish money on people, knowing it would win their allegiance to the state and make them dependent upon the state. People wrote against it, spoke against it, fought against it, but to no avail. It was actually a shame at that time, when I was a boy, to take government money, to take assistance from the government. But that slowly changed. As each year passed, more and more people had their hand in the government cookie jar. And more and more men began to think, well, since I'm getting taxed for all this money that is being given away, I should get my fair share. And you would hear people say that all the time. I deserve my fair share. One of the great evils when you open the public purse are things that shouldn't be opened for. So they, too, began to put their hand in the cookie jar, and the Leviathan grew. The federal government became a beast. Suddenly it wasn't a shame by the end of the 70s and early 80s to have your hand in the cookie jar because so many people did, even the businessmen. There was welfare of all kinds available to the people. So no longer was it a shame to take from the government purse. It was acceptable. And now... Over the last 40 years, I have watched the Leviathan grow and the beast eat up the land to where nearly all men are drunk upon the feast that the beast has laid before them. Even the churchmen taking over $12 billion from the beast, the federal government, for closing their churches and universities and organizations during the pretendemic. And now I see a nation of dependence from shame, to acceptance, 
to dependence all in my lifetime. A nation of people who look to the state to wipe their rear ends and blow their noses from the cradle to the grave. And it is sickening to watch an enslaved people. And now, as long as they have their fair share, the people are overwhelmingly okay with the rebellion and the evil, with the false gods and the immorality of America. Even the churchmen, like the Old Testament priests of old, use soft words to accommodate the evil, to help Christians enculturate to the evil, be accepting of it. So Solomon had created this huge tax burden in order to create this elaborate, massive, bureaucratic state. And the people, you may recall, sought relief. They sought relief from Solomon's son and heir of the Israelite throne, namely Rehoboam. And Rehoboam took the advice of the young men over the old men and harshly told the people, quote, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist, unquote. Remember that? Second Chronicles 10.10, those of you taking notes. America is under Rehoboam's finger. Most Americans are just too dumb to recognize it because they have become dependent upon the state. You can rule, enslave, and control us. Just feed us and care for us. Both parties, both the Democrats and Republicans, are thoroughly statist in their worldview and thinking. It's just a matter of what form of statism you prefer. But both are statists, thoroughly, in their worldview. Remember, when the government gives you money, they don't do it because they care about you. They do it because they want to control you. They want you to be dependent on it. It's called the politics of dependency. With the shekels come the shackles. Remember also, when men are immoral in their private life, it transcends into their public life. You cannot separate the two. An immoral man will abuse the authority he possesses in the public realm. In Solomon's time, it was the false gods of his wives. In our day, the state is the god of Americans. The state is the god of Americans, and there's two little demigods right next to that god, the god of the almighty dollar and the god of education. People gladly send their kids off to government school, off to the universities, sell their souls just so they can get that piece of paper to make money. It is the god of Americans and most Christian Americans hide their idolatry for the state behind their false interpretation of Romans 13. Because the Christians are just idolaters too in America. Giving the state homage for things they should not even have their hands upon. And it's disgusting to watch. And they pillar themselves with their little priests called pastors who make it all good in their minds. We live in a statist hell. Secession has a place in the affairs of nations. Understand you live in a nation that was created through an act of secession. The Declaration of Independence declares in part, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another 
and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation, end of quote. You live in a nation that was found through an act of secession. The founders of America then listed the abuse of authority by Britain and seceded from Britain. When one reads the history of nations, you see that there are countless acts of secession down through the history of man. Secession has a place in the affairs of nations. When those who possess civil government authority abuse their authority, Secession can be a lawful and biblical means of ending their abuse of people. As you know, I'm big on interposition, with the whole doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Understand, interposition and secession are sisters of sorts. Often acts of interposition take place both by the people and the lesser authorities, before secession takes place. This is true. Many acts of interposition doesn't cure things, doesn't remedy the problem. Secession takes place. Just read history. You hope the acts of interposition stems the abuse of the superior authority, reigns in the evil of the superior authorities, and sometimes they do, but other times they do not. And then, because of the continued abuse of authority by the civil government, Secession takes place. Two things about that. A certain number of the people are for it. Usually not a majority, by the way. And the secession movement, number two, has lawful leaders. Usually lesser magistrates, lesser authorities. Patrick Henry, for example, was a member of the House of Burgesses in Virginia prior to secession taking place. There were many acts of interposition by the people and by lesser authorities when it came to our nation seceding from Britain. Many acts of interposition before secession took place. If you want to see many, tons of acts of interposition, study the history regarding the Stamp Act and the acts of interposition that time, how it led to the American Revolution, how it led to the secession of America from Britain. Today we rarely see interposition, though we do see far more of it now than we did just three years ago, haven't we? Far more. Many acts. We've documented hundreds of acts over the last three years. Over 600 acts of interposition that we've documented over the last three years. So we've seen more of it. But it's still rare. It's still not common enough by any means let alone secession, but when the people are pushed to the brink, they will secede. When they realize even that most men are glad to be slaves, they will still act. It is always a minority of people in any nation that take action against tyrants, against the abuse of authority by civil government officials. You do not need a majority. You need men. Men. Men who fear God and not man. Men who hate evil 
Men who love Christ and their neighbor. That's what you need. You want to avoid secession if you can. Do all you can to reign in the evil and avoid bloodshed. Declare the truth of God's law, word, and gospel to men. Employ all the tools men fought, bled, and died for us to have in order to check the evil and the tyrants within our government. Involve yourself in civil government matters. Engage the magistrates. Instruct them in their office from the word of God. You want to do all these things. Because you want to avoid secession if you can. Understand when secession comes, it often happens so swiftly due to circumstances. So you must think proper thoughts now. You must consider and proffer the need for it now. Because the need for it does exist now. But push interposition in hopes that that works in reigning in the evil because it often reigns in the evil bloodlessly. Not always, but often. Far more often when you move to secession, it produces bloodshed. Men cross swords. We saw it in our nation's founding when we seceded from Britain. We saw it when the South seceded from the North regarding our civil war. And it would have even taken place here in our text, 2 Chronicles chapter 11. But look what happens. So we read verse 1, and it says, Now when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. He plans on having war. Ten tribes just seceded. But look what happens. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel. In Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your brethren. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. God was using this judgment to humble Rehoboam, to get his attention. He went from this king of this massive country, the wealthiest on the planet, you may recall, but now in decline because of its massive taxation, and immorality of the government leaders. And here he is being humbled by the Lord. This is a goodness. God's judgment is always a goodness. It's a mercy to man. Whether at the individual level or at the national level. So God tells him, don't go up and fight. And he obeys the Lord. He obeys the Lord. Bloodshed would have happened here in this secession, but the Lord stopped the bloodshed. And we see two things here. First, secession is legitimate. It has a place in the affairs of nations. God himself called for the secession taking place here. And second, Secession often leads to bloodshed. I have friends who are for peaceful secession. I tell them all the time, there will be no peaceful secession here. You are up against leftists. Leftists will not secede peacefully, nor will they let you secede peacefully. I grew up amongst leftists in Detroit. (laughs) I know exactly how they think. 
They must control every inch of your life and every inch of geography. And until that's the case, there will be no peace from their point of view. Secession is not often peaceful. Just read the history of men. Secession is not often peaceful. It often includes bloodshed. But the bloodshed is necessary. Force must be employed to stop the evil. Force must be employed to stop the evil. This is a fact of history. And it is not against the word of God. There is a place for force to be employed to stop the evil. Things have gotten that bad. So look what happens next. Verses 5 through 12. Rehoboam, since he can't go and attack the other ten tribes, builds defensive fortifications. It says, so Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. And he built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Beth, Zur, Soko, Adalam, Gath, Merashah, Ziph, Adoram, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Ijalon, and Hebron, which are in Judah and Benjamin, fortified cities. And he fortified the strongholds, put captains in them, and stores of food, oil, and wine. Also in every city he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. So, Solomon builds these defensive fortifications in case the seceders attack them. Understand, usually the seceders just want to be left alone. <laughs> they rarely attack. They just want to be left alone. But Rehoboam, just in case they do attack, wants to fortify these cities. Then notice what the scriptures state next and understand What is about to be said by me is of massive importance when it comes to secession. What the scriptures declare here is of massive importance when it comes to secession. Verses 13 through 17 read and say, And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him, took their stand with Rehoboam. For the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem for Jeroboam. Remember, Rehoboam is in Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam has the other ten tribes put there by God himself to lead and rule. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he... Jeroboam appointed for himself priests for the high places for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord, God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years, because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Do you see how judgment is good? The secession takes place. Rehoboam is slapped out of his, you know, idiocy and evil and wickedness. And for three years, they want to, they're faithfully certain. 
They hear the knock at the door of the other ten tribes. They want to be right by him in case fighting breaks out. The judgment of God is a goodness to men. Two things I want you to notice about this passage, verses 13 through 17, when it comes to secession. First, notice that when secession takes place, you better do right by the Lord. Faithfulness matters. Hence the title of the sermon, Secession and Faithfulness. Big deal if your state secedes from the federal beast, but they continue to murder the pre-born. Big deal if your state secedes from the federal beast, but your state continues to decriminalize homosex and adultery and allow it. Big deal if your state secedes from the federal beast, but they continue to spit in the face of Christ and on the law and word of the Lord in a thousand different ways like the federal beast and the states are currently doing. Big deal. It means nothing. Faithfulness matters to the Lord when secession takes place. You humble yourself in his sight. You're utterly dependent upon him. You do right by him. You must do right by him. The laws of a nation should mirror the law and justice of God. Jeroboam here in our text decided to go along with the evil. The people didn't like the money situation, but they had no problem with the evil. In fact, they were good with it. America is the same in our day. America has a monetary problem because it has a moral problem. But the dopes will never recognize that or figure that out. Judgment looms on America, and rightly so. When you are doing secession, you better do right by the Lord. Faces low to the ground, repentance abounding, and wholly dependent on him against those who are openly his enemies. Jeroboam should have gotten a clue. Didn't the Lord just tell him, as we saw in our last sermon in 1 Kings 11? Remember 1 Kings 11 is the parallel of what the history is taking place here that Ezra is writing about in 2 Chronicles? And remember that the Lord told Jeroboam in verse 38 when he chose him to lead the secession movement, that, quote, Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. That's what the Lord said to Jeroboam if he was faithful and true to the Lord. The Lord told him that. And yet here he is going along with and promoting the evil of the land. So my point is, When you do secession, holiness and obedience to the Lord matters. Doing right by him matters. Faces low to the ground, repentance abounding, and wholly dependent on him against those who are openly his enemies. That matters. This is the prime, most important matter when a people realize secession is the only option left. What I just said to you faithfulness to the Lord. That is the prime, most important matter when a people realize secession is the only option left. Second, 
what I want you to notice here, is that secession provides a place for those who want to serve the Lord and do right to rally geographically and governmentally. Secession provides a place for those who want to serve the Lord and do right to rally geographically and governmentally. This is hugely important. Look at verse 13. It says, And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in Israel took their stand with him, with Rehoboam, for the Levites that left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem for Jeroboam. Decided to go with these false gods, and he ran out any of the churchmen of his day out of the land who weren't going to be priests to their false gods. So they went to Rehoboam. Secession's good that way. It gives a geographical place where people can rally together, ideologically and geographically and governmentally. Extremely important to understand. The good people fled from Jeroboam and rallied to Rehoboam. All the good churchmen left. Only the whores and hirelings were left in the ten tribes. And look at verse 16. It says, and after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. When secession takes place, it provides a people to gather geographically and governmentally to do right by the Lord and serve him faithfully in the earth to not openly impugn his law, like our government does, regarding the slaughter of the innocents, regarding the filth of homosex, the legalization of adultery, and all the other evils that we could go on and list for the next 20 minutes. It says, so they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years. They had a good influence. Those who still loved the Lord and wanted to be true to him, They had a good influence upon the king. He walked in the footsteps of his grandfather, David, rather than in the footsteps of his father, Solomon. For three years, he did that. Secession provides a place for all those who want to serve the Lord and do right to rally geographically and governmentally. Doesn't matter if it's the county. Doesn't matter if it's a state. Doesn't matter if it's just a city. It provides that for people. And listen to me. The importance of men being men in this hour is massive. The importance of men being men in this hour is massive. Men should be thinking thoughts that need to be taken into account when they see a nation this far gone and this deep in rebellion to God. They should be thinking, what may we need to do as men? What may I have to do as a man? How will I act in the midst of such evil? And people are all wondering, where are the men? You notice that? Where are the men? Understand that men have been under attack in this nation by design of the government for over 50 years now. A brief perusal of our nation's laws, policies, and court opinions demonstrates how true that is. Entertainment news media reveals how true that is. We live in a matriarchal hell. And worse yet, 
The vast majority of churchmen have joined the state and the men-haters by effeminizing men via their mimini-pimini pulpits. The spirituality of churchmen is now measured by how soft and ladylike they are. But the question of the hour is, where are the men? It remains the question of the hour. Where are the men? And more pointedly, where are the men who fear God and have love and fealty to Christ? The men who cannot live in peaceful coexistence with the idols and the evils and the tyrants who trample the law and word of God. Where are those men? True Christianity comes into conflict with the religion and idols of cultures. True Christianity confronts the idols and the evils and the tyrants of nations. Just read the history of Christianity. It is the history of Christianity from the book of Acts on. In Acts 17, it is said of Christian men, quote, These who have turned the world upside down have come here. This means those who are declaring something contrary to what we have known have come here. And they don't like it. To them, this was an attack upon their filthy way of life, this Christianity. This was a possible end to their status quo, this Christianity coming. They have turned the world upside down. They are acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. They are declaring another king's rule. And it brought conflict. It brought conflict. And we have to ask, where are these kind of men in our day? The world is actually screaming for these kind of men, men who love God, who fealty to Christ, men who will speak and act. But most churchmen and Christian men in our day want nothing to do with conflict. They want nothing to do with confronting the idols and the evils and the tyrants of their day. They teach that we should conform to the evil edicts of Caesar, that there should never be a conflict. That wouldn't be Jesus-like. And if there is, those Christians causing it are bad Christians that we are always to obey the state, that conflict is bad, confrontation should be avoided, accommodation and appeasement should be sought. These churchmen, teaching a Christianity that behaves like a cheap whore which will sell itself for a morsel, consumed with its narcissism and its consumerism and its pedestalism, and it's grievous to the hearts of men And many men in our nation have sat next to their beds, broken in heart at what they see. God is raising up those who can no longer sit by, no longer allow it, be faithful and true to him. More are joining that happy band. We pray it is so. So I ask again, where are the men? We must shake ourselves, brothers. Where are these men? Brethren, we must be those men. We must be those men in our day. We must speak. We must act. We must confront. Let us not flee from the conflict, but let our hearts burn within us and run to the fray when we see his law and word being impugned by men and by the governments of men. Let us be those men. 
And we must shake ourselves free from American Christianity to do it, brothers. We must be those kind of men. We need a move of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let us be those men. Chapter 11 ends with some disturbing narrative in verses 18 through 23. Look what it says here. Then Rehoboam took for himself his wife, Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David and of Abahil, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children, Jeush, Shemariah, and Zaham. After her, he took Makah, the granddaughter of Absalom. And she bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelomith. Now Rehoboam loved Makah, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and his concubines, for he took 18 wives and 60 concubines and begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. And Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Makah, as chief to be leader among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. He dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin to every fortified city, and he gave them provisions in abundance. And then look what it says. He also sought many wives for them. This is a disturbing narrative. Rehoboam did like his father and had many wives, not nearly as many as Solomon, but many, and he taught his sons, as it says in verse 23, to do the same thing. He actually sought many wives for them. And Rehoboam would corrupt things further, just like his father. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, things had gotten back to normal. Now I can walk away from God again. When Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. Rehoboam's faithfulness lasted only three years. It lasted in the crucible of God's judgment and his humbling and the threat of ten tribes swooping down upon them. But he was hardly faithful because he forsook the law of the Lord completely. And that is where we'll pick up next time in chapter 12. May Christ be praised. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer.